Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. The global pandemic has exacerbated an already simmering crisis of food insecurity, itself rooted in growing populations pushed outside of formal labor markets. This exclusion, often implemented along racial lines, leads to precarity and a struggle for survival, which has only grown more bleak with the pressures of COVID-19. The economy simply cannot produce enough jobs, and even those existing jobs deemed essential work during the pandemic are often precisely low-waged and dangerous. In response, a constellation of existing food distribution hubs, mutual aid programs, and food sovereignty efforts have had to rapidly adapt to the pandemic and the crisis. Their work is simultaneously manual and critical, as many hands collaborate to pack and deliver relief boxes while thinking together about the sources of food insecurity and who is being subjected to it. We share stories today from three of these projects, a food distribution and meal delivery service in Atlanta, Georgia, a free kitchen or Commodore in Tijuana, Mexico, and a food pantry in Bloomington, Indiana. All three projects are informed by an understanding of the importance of sharing food together and defining a better way of life. All three existed in some form before COVID, and each underwent major changes as they grappled with the problem of continuing to address hunger without spreading the virus. For the Food for Life project in Atlanta, it meant scaling up and inviting hundreds of new volunteers to participate and experiment. For the Contrabiento y Marea Commodore in Tijuana, it meant scaling down the number of days to make more time for staff to clean and stay protected themselves. For Bloomington's Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, it meant scaling back on some of the wide range of gardening and nutrition programs they normally run to address the root causes of hunger and inequality while still serving hundreds of people a week. Up first, we have Food for Life in Atlanta. My name is Marlon, and I'm an organizer in Atlanta. Food for Life is a, an initiative that grew out of a long-running project in Atlanta called Food Not Bombs. Um, there are chapters all over the world. And Food for Life was an initiative that kicked off uh, as a result of the COVID-19 the pandemic. The goal of it was to ensure that even as the economy and all of the processes that normally got people access to food, even as that was getting disrupted and broken down, 
people who needed food would still be able to get it. Food for Life is primarily a logistics project. It was about collecting bulk food and distributing it out to households. And so the work encompasses a few different stages, but they're mostly about moving things around. We find farmers, uh, people who run food distribution warehouses, restaurants, anybody who's involved in food production or circulation, and we find out if they have anything extra that they can donate or that they don't need. And then we arrange for volunteers to pick up that bulk food and move it to a depot where it can be sorted and distributed into grocery boxes that uh, are useful to a family or a household. And then we have drivers, like basically delivery drivers, who take those boxes of groceries and get them out to individual households. One of the interesting things about our project, I think that maybe distinguishes it. Since COVID, there have been a lot of projects that aim to get food to people um, and even deliver food. But the unique thing about Food for Life is that there's no existing institution or government program that stands behind it that organizes it. It's entirely self-organized. The people who are picking up all of these donations, the people who are moving them around, packing them into boxes, and coordinating all of the logistics to make that happen. They are random people who signed up via a web form on our website saying that they would like to help contribute to making this happen. And each one of them has found the way that they can most usefully plug into that process. Uh, and they're playing that role. So it's completely volunteer and it's also completely sort of like self-directed and self-organized. And that's also, I think, one of the biggest reasons that it has been so successful and that it's been able to scale so much uh, in response to you know, the pandemic crisis. You know, Food Not Bombs in Atlanta has been operating for decades. And the traditional scale that we operate on is we have maybe six to a dozen volunteers that come together once a week and distribute food to maybe 100 to 150 hungry people uh, in one afternoon. Uh, and that's the scale that we've been operating on for the past 10 years or so. When the pandemic hit, we realized that that model wasn't going to work anymore. It was, it's not possible for us to gather in a public place and just have everybody crowd around a table and get dished out soup. Wouldn't be safe. So we came up with an alternate model, which was let's deliver fresh groceries to people's doors directly with no contact, you know, and because at the beginning of the pandemic, of course, there was a lot of anxiety around surface contamination. Uh, we thought this would be a way that we could get food to people in a way that would protect their health. The drawback to that, of course, is that if you have six people, you know, six volunteers cannot distribute very many groceries to very many people. So there was this huge crisis of, of labor, like we did not have enough human labor to circulate the food that we had, uh, let alone the amount of food that was going to be needed to deal with the vast number of people who were losing their jobs or who were being you know, stuck at home. So we did kind of a hopeful thing, which was uh, we created a website and the website had two buttons on it. And one of the buttons was, if you need food, click this button and fill out the short form. And if you want to help other people get food, click this button and fill out this short form. And within the first 24 hours or so of having like put that out on social media, we had more than 100 people signed up requesting food and more than 100 people signed up offering to help volunteer. So the immediate scale of 
available raw labor just jumped immediately as soon as the pandemic was looming. And I, th- I think the reason for that is that at, at the beginning, you know, in like uh, in late February and early March, um, everybody could tell that something really threatening was on the horizon. And there was this sense that we all needed to drop whatever we were doing and attend to this, like deal with this impending catastrophe. But people didn't really know what they could do. And, you know, the, the traditional structures that like organize and direct our efforts, you know, our jobs, our, you know, our other institutions that we look to, they weren't responding. They didn't have like a plan for how we could be useful. Uh, and we did, you know, our plan was really simple. Right. It was just like fill out this web form and then like figure out how we can get food to people. But it was a plan that people could act on. And they did. And then from that point, of course, you know, after those first 24 hours, the number of people who needed food, as well as the number of volunteers who were, you know, offering to help in some way, uh, just grew and grew, you know, into the thousands and tens of thousands, which created this whole other interesting, this interesting problem, which we had never confronted before, which was what do you do? Uh, like, how do you operate on that scale? How do you deal with the fact that there's a thousand people who, you know, would like to to help out with a project, but are waiting, they're waiting to figure out how they can do that. Yeah. So it introduced a lot of like, like the scale, the scale that we've grown to has been really encouraging, but also like incredibly challenging uh, in a way that we've never like experienced before. We're critical of uh, like hierarchy and centralized management of processes in general. And I think that that has been a real asset to us in organizing this project, because if we had sort of stuck to the conventional wisdom of how you're supposed to scale up an operation like that, you know, the common sense would be, well, you need to create a nonprofit, which will have a board, which will, you know, have an executive director and the executive director will hire professional managers to coordinate various aspects of your operation. And then you'll, you know, keep records and, you know, like establish sub-managers and program leads and all of this. And that structure wasn't working. Like the, that structure was ineffective to respond to the crisis. And we could see that because there are a whole bunch of existing NGOs that are ostensibly responding to food insecurity and making sure that people have access to food. And they weren't doing anything at the beginning of the pandemic. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't respond to the problem. And they also couldn't respond to this you know, abrupt, sudden upsurge of interest of, you know, of, of available help of human potential. They, they couldn't capture it. They couldn't direct it in any meaningful way. But the fact that we were interested in other approaches, you know, to help people self-organize allowed us to respond and scale up when nobody else could. And really what that meant in practice is we kept our structure as flat as possible, but we also put a lot of effort into creating the context and the conditions where people who had initiative were able to take that initiative and be supported by other people uh, who liked the ideas that they were working with in a structure that allowed cooperation. So we developed an online chat platform and anytime any new volunteer came in, we plugged them into this chat platform. We showed them some kind of orientation documents, you know, so that they could understand here's the philosophy on how we make decisions and here's 
the philosophy on how you can start an initiative, uh, you know, pursuing something that you think has value and get other people to help you with it. Like, don't wait for instructions. You know, don't wait for somebody else's approval to, to get moving. Start doing your thing and describe it to others so that they can help. So Food for Life, from its very conception, was always branching out into multiple different kind of experiments. There was a, there was a group of people who had signed up to help that were really excited about baking bread. And that didn't seem like a great idea to me. Had it been my decision, I would have said, no, nah, I don't think it's worth it. Like, let's not bake bread. But they were excited about it and they were able to create a chat room for it, write up a little document about how it was going to work, gather a handful of, you know, 10 people who want to do it, secure a place to bake bread, secure donations for the materials. And then pretty soon they were providing, you know, three dozen loaves of bread every day to be distributed out along with the groceries. Uh, and there's tons of other like little initiatives like that that just sprung up because people felt empowered to direct themselves rather than kind of, yeah, like waiting for instructions. In a lot of ways, it's the groceries that you would buy if you went to the store. You know, it's like milk, eggs, meat, fresh vegetables, you know, canned goods, pasta. I think maybe one of the exciting things, though, is that uh, a lot of times the food is even better than what you would get in the grocery store because a lot of it is coming directly from farms. Because we partner with farms that have access or farms that have, you know, are getting grants to produce extra food to, to give out. So it's just, it's just really quality food and people appreciate it. We get lots of feedback that people are trying new foods that they've never tried before, or that the meal that they've cooked with the groceries that we've delivered is the best meal that they've had all month. Atlanta, like many cities, deals with a lot of poverty and particularly food deserts, like areas where people don't have access to fresh food. It's also an extremely sprawling city, uh, which means that a lot of people, especially poor people, live in the periphery in areas where they would have to travel very far to get food. And if these people don't have cars, then that means they're riding the bus. This became a particular problem during the pandemic when mass transit was just not safe. So there were a lot of people who were kind of stranded in their apartment complexes or their kind of like low rent suburban developments, which is why delivering food directly to people's doorsteps was a major lifesaver, I think, to a lot of people. Speaking politically, like in terms of the way that Food for Life intersects with the uprisings that happened that summer. One interesting story that I can tell about how Food for Life related to the uprising is a lot of our volunteers, uh, including myself, a lot of our volunteers were also deeply involved with the uprising that followed the murder of George Floyd. And of course, in Atlanta, the murder of Richard Brooks. A lot of times what happens in this kind of situation, if you have organizers who are running one project uh, and then something else comes up, uh, something urgent that requires all of our attention, is that the projects kind of collapse or they go stale or they go into hibernation. At the, at the end of May, when the uprising really blew up in Atlanta, I pretty much dropped all participation in Food for Life because we were out there on the streets. We were trying to support the people who were getting arrested. We were, uh, you know, there was a lot of other work that needed to be done beyond just getting food to people. But the project just kept going. It never missed a beat. 
Uh, and I think part of the reason is because the way that it was structured allowed other people to just immediately step up and fill the gaps, the organizational gaps that were left when some of us dropped out. Um, and then also to just reintegrate us when we were able to step back into it. And I've never really been part of something that worked that way before. It was very encouraging to see that you know, the structures that we had set up were resilient enough to survive the kind of instability of a major social upheaval and you know, kind of a turnover of the participants and still keep doing what they're doing. The scale that we've reached with Food for Life is beyond anything that I ever imagined that we would be doing. Uh, we've distributed more than 11,000 boxes of groceries to households all throughout the metro Atlanta area. Um, and we're continuing to distribute hundreds every week uh, with no sign of slowing down. And this is amazing, but it's also conspicuous how our model of sort of direct to the door deliveries has this kind of atomizing effect. All of the people who are receiving groceries are receiving them in their individual homes, and they're only having contact with this one person who delivers the groceries. And this is kind of different than a lot of the spirit that Food Not Bombs tries to cultivate, where sharing food and meeting each other's needs uh, is this kind of mass effort that brings everybody together, helps us recognize each other, recognize our common humanity, and even just be in the same social space. And so what we're looking at now, especially as the pandemic hopefully is on the downswing, are ways to transition from this model that's very kind of like almost Amazon-esque in its like two-year door mechanisms um, to transition this into something that allows people to build both kind of organic community around the sharing of food and also that allows us to direct the resources that we're circulating to support political struggles. Uh, you know, like we're interested in making sure that if an apartment complex or a neighborhood goes on rent strike or is uh, the target of police repression, that we're able to focus on those areas and make sure that they're getting groceries to help them, you know, survive through a strike or help them absorb some of the shock of dealing with police repression. Um, because we see that as part of the purpose of this operation, right? Like the purpose is not just to kind of take up the slack of the government when they've failed to get everybody food, but to make us stronger in a way that will allow us to transform this world to the point that food for life is not necessary anymore. The Contra Biento y Morea Free Restaurant and Kitchen in Tijuana, Mexico, was founded out of the same spirit of collective care and safety in numbers that animated the migrant caravans of 2018. The first major caravan initially formed as the result of a rumor on social media, but quickly became reorganized as a powerful idea, a new way to migrate, which brought the collective power of migrants together to protect each other on the 3,000-mile journey. We spoke with Daniel, Jairo, and Devi about how the project was formed in the months after the caravan's arrival in Tijuana, and how their work has changed under COVID-19. Devi translated, but also added some extra information for context. Here they are. Hola, mi nombre es Daniel Vladimir. Soy voluntario del comedor contra viento y marea. Hello, my name is Daniel Vladimir. I am a volunteer of Contra Viento y Marea, El Comedor. Hola, mi nombre es Jairo García. Soy voluntario de Contra Viento y Marea y llevo laborando dos años. My name is Jairo and I am a volunteer of The Comedor. I've been with The Comedor for two years. And I am Debbie. I am 
a migrant organizer with Contraviento y Marea. I've been with the Comedor two years. The Comedor started two years ago. Estamos ubicados en la zona norte de Tijuana. We are located in the zona norte of Tijuana. Eh, llegamos eh, en transporte a la frontera. Nos apoyaron mucho y también hicimos días caminando y así logramos llegar a la frontera sanos y bien. We traveled with the caravans, sometimes walking by foot, sometimes getting rides. Um, it took several days to arrive at the border with the caravans, but because we traveled in the caravan, we arrived mostly safe and sound. Es un lugar peligroso. Las autoridades aprovechan mucho de los migrantes. Eh, desde que vino la caravana, seguimos ya dos años de labor en el comedor contra viento y marea. Y seguimos aquí para adelante. Since the caravans arrived in Tijuana, um, we've been um, with the comedor. We opened the comedor. Um, Tijuana is a very dangerous place. The border areas are very dangerous in general. The authorities are abusive towards migrants and poor people in general. But fortunately, we have the comedor that helps keep us going forward. Uh, empezamos el comedor desde que estábamos en Benito Juárez uh, acababa de llegar la caravana y entonces nosotros como centroamericanos decidimos abrir el comedor para los niños y niñas que, que lo necesitaban y a las mujeres embarazadas para darles una, una sana alimentación. When the caravan arrived to Tijuana, um, there was a warehouse that was near the Benito Juarez sports complex that was rented. It was a bodega space where Central American migrants from the caravan were living. There was a group of about 500 of them. And in this warehouse, they organized themselves autonomously into different groups. Some were in charge of the kitchen, some did security, some did donations. And from there, they were supporting, in particular, pregnant women, kids, and, and vulnerable migrants. And so that was the original um, way that the warehouse started. It was called Contraviento y Marea. Eventually, it was closed down, and the comedor took the volunteers that were already organizing at this warehouse, and they wanted to open up a space and we named it the same as that bodega, Contra Viento y Marea. And so it's the same organizers that were uh, already organizing in, in the first Contra Viento y Marea that created the comedor. Eh, lo que hacemos es servir, servir a la gente primeramente. Estamos organizados como un grupo de centroamericanos. Eh, nos apoyamos mucho como, como grupo y así tomamos las decisiones también en conjunto para, para tener unas mejor, mejores decisiones. The Comedor is organized by Central American migrant youth. We are organized horizontally. We make decisions collectively in consensus to make better decisions. The Comedor provides free meals right now four times a week. Before the pandemic, we used to be open six to seven days, serving two meals a day. But now we only serve once a day, four days a week. Um, we also give other kinds of support. We give donations of clothing, shoes, goods, toiletry kits, all kinds of survival goods as well as meals. Brindamos cuatro días a la semana. Bueno, antes del COVID brindábamos los seis días de la semana comida, dos tiempos 
por día, pero hoy con el COVID brindamos cuatro días a la semana. Brindamos lunes, martes y miércoles. Lunes a la una de la tarde, jueves también a la una de la tarde y no, jueves a las tres y miércoles a la una. Brindamos todo tipo de comida, comida, pollo, pescado, frijoles, arroz, chilaquiles, eh, pavo, pues algo que le pueda encantar a la gente y pueda irse con un buen sabor de boca. Pues brindamos en cada turno, son de 180 o 150 personas cada vez que brindamos comida y se la brindamos a toda aquella gente que la necesita sin importar de dónde sea, de dónde venga, o qué color, o qué, qué color de piel sea, o qué religión. No los basamos ni los catalogamos en eso, se la damos a todo aquel que me diga, regálame un plato de comida, con gusto se lo damos y se lo brindamos de la forma más humilde que se pueda. We are giving food four days a week now prior to the pandemic we were operating six days a week so for now we're only giving four days and we're giving one meal per day we're serving in between 150 and 180 people per serving and we're serving whatever we can get donated sometimes we get fish fillets donated sometimes we get chicken donated sometimes we have beans and rice other times we have turkey donated for example like this week And so we, we try to do our best to provide home-cooked, hot, healthy, and tasty meals that people will walk away with a good taste in their mouth. We do this for the community at large. We don't serve a specific audience. We don't serve, for example, just migrants. We serve everyone who comes to us for meals. That could include people of different ethnicities, of different backgrounds, of different races and religions. We don't have a preference for any particular group. We serve everyone equally with dignity and respect. Pues la verdad se ve bien bonito porque no tener un líder los hace como ser más fuerte porque hay días en el cual uno no se levanta bien o por, sus, por cosas de la vida tal vez anda enojado o molesto y cuando hay un líder, pues el líder sin importarle de cómo uno esté, él quiere que cumplan sus, sus, sus actividades y siendo nosotros los encargados, pues los apoyamos como una familia, como amigos, como que hayamos vivido toda la vida juntos y uno se siente mal, pues lo entendemos y lo comprendemos porque tal vez así los levantamos la mayoría o tal vez no todos, pero es más bonito porque un líder, él tiene que imponer sus reglas y sus metas para darle para adelante, pero sin un líder nosotros como que los organizamos más porque lo, lo hacemos un hobby, pero con mucho cariño y con mucho amor para ayudar a la gente y entenderlos uno a los otros y entre todos comprendemos y entendemos que lo podemos hacer y lo hacemos de la forma más humilde que se puede, pero sí es una gran diferencia que nosotros los organicemos porque entre nosotros somos jóvenes y los entendemos unos a los otros. So I'm going to try my best to capture the beauty of that. Claudia was saying that at the comedor we are like a family, we're friends, we organize on a basis of friendship. We don't see this as a job. 
um, we see this more as like something we enjoy doing, maybe like a hobby, but without, I guess the reason why we say hobby is more because it's, we don't see it as like a strict regimented bureaucratic, heavy top down type of approach. We see it as something that we do organically and naturally. And in the company of friends, we feel like we've lived together for our whole lives, even though we've only been together for two years. This space is unique because we don't have leaders. Leaders order you to do their programming and you have to do what they say and follow orders and you have to complete the tasks that they assign to you. And when we organize in consensus, if somebody doesn't feel good one day or somebody is having problems or there's something that's weighing one of us down, we understand and we adapt to those circumstances. We allow for people's humanity to come through without bossing them into a, a situation where they don't feel comfortable, but they can step back and, and take time to breathe. And that's something other groups don't have the luxury of doing. Our spaces is run on communication and on friendship. And that really distinguishes us from other groups that have um, leaders and have bosses because we try to reach people where they are, meet people where they are, um, especially amongst our group. And we make space for folks to have bad days or good days and and we come together in ways that allow for our, our humanity to be met and and for each other to feel embraced to feel supported and sustained in this type of work pues la verdad somos un grupo libre de alguien que nos mande los organizamos entre nosotros mismos todos tenemos la misma decisión y si alguno no está de acuerdo la platicamos somos un, una sola persona pero en realidad somos varias pero los comportamos como que fuéramos todos los líderes y pues la diferencia es de que regalamos la comida sin ningún objetivo sin ninguna condición a cambio para ellos les regalamos doble comida si lo tenemos y si disponemos de ella porque sé que el hambre es grande aquí en todo el mundo, pero el principal punto es de que damos la comida sin a cambio de pedirles algo a ellos. Our group is organized differently than um, a church or another space that's a nonprofit, say, because we all speak in consensus. We speak with one voice, but we all make those decisions collectively. It's a process that we, we feel um, is different than other groups. We also know that other groups charge to give out food or may have other conditions like church groups ask you to pray before the meals. We don't do that. We don't have any conditions. We give everything for free without an agenda. There's hunger all over the world, but Tijuana in particular, it's, it's a very, um, there's a lot of need here. And so we're here to help the community as best we can without asking for anything in exchange. Eh, los retos que, que tenemos ahorita es mm, ayudar a las personas y esperar el número que el número del asilo en Estados Unidos. The challenges we have right now as a group are to continue to raise donations to be able to give them out for free and the volunteers collectively are part of the metering system. They're waiting for their number to be called in order to have a chance to apply for U.S. asylum. Some of the challenges that we have 
for our space right now are continuing to secure enough funds to continue with operations. We rely on hundreds of partners, accomplices, allies across both sides of the border. We depend on small donations and small grants primarily to sustain the space and to continue our free food program and our donations program. So a challenge for us is figuring out how to continue organizing with this model into the future. It's also a challenge because we rely entirely on volunteers who are migrants and migrants are a vulnerable population that are also transient. They're not in one place for a long time. And so we have to constantly be looking out to to fill the volunteer needs by recruiting more volunteers or by opening up uh, different ways that we can support the, the volunteers that are here so that they can stay and help. Um, El Comedor offers um, housing, offers free transport, offers access to a free medical clinic, free dentist. Um, we have partners that are supporting us by uh, inviting us to their legal clinics, to access immigration lawyers in Mexico, to access immigration lawyers in the U.S. And so those are all benefits, of course, the food, are all benefits that our volunteers have by, by being here and doing this, this labor. And so we're constantly trying to, to adapt to challenges like COVID, which require us to serve differently, to implement more hygiene and public health protocols into our, our daily routines. So those are all challenges that we have. COVID, maintaining our volunteer base, maintaining enough donations and resources to operate since we are a group that is organized differently than nonprofits. As was mentioned earlier, we don't have a boss. We don't have, we are all the boss. And so with this model, we don't have one donor that per se gives us everything we need, but it gives us the freedom to also run the space as we want in consensus. And so it requires a lot of outreach and um, working with other groups and partners uh, closely to be able to get enough resources to continue. In the future, we may want to operate differently or bring in new volunteers or do something that would sustain the comedor a little bit further. But for now, we want to survive. And we're fighting very hard to do that. <laughs> People in the United States can support our space by giving directly. We need funds to pay the rent, to pay the light bill, to pay the water bill, to you know, buy different things that would not be donated, that we need to cook. We also would like for folks who are interested in finding ways to collaborate if they're in Tijuana or San Diego or Los Angeles and they have donations of clothing or other um, personal hygiene kit items or shoes that they'd like to donate. We take all those things. We have volunteers in the U.S. where they can drop off those goods and then they'll be transported to us um, at a later time. So those are ways that people can, can be in solidarity with us is providing direct assistance with goods, survival goods. We have a partnership with Inland Empire Harm Reduction Coalition, and they bring us Narcan, which is an opiate reversal nose spray that we give out for free, no questions asked. And so if, if people have resources like that, we would welcome a partnership. We will welcome being in solidarity with them. If folks want us, for example, to give interviews on their on their podcast or, or their radio or their 
um, YouTube channel. We welcome those kinds of opportunities to speak about our story, to put out our, our messages and to tell them what it's like for migrants in Tijuana who are trying to organize in solidarity outside of the nonprofit system. And so there's a lot of ways that people can support. Um, not everybody can do everything, but everyone can do something. And I think um, solidarity is not just about a one-way street. We welcome a relationship, a friendship that will last for years. And we invite people to, to be a part of that, to, to join our struggle. And finally, we talked to folks in our own town of Bloomington, Indiana. Sarah Cahillane and Kristen Lucas are two of the key members of the Mother Hubbard's Covered team. Sarah is the Director of Development and Kristen is the Operations Manager. In 1998, the Hub was founded by two young mothers and in the more than 20 years since, has consistently grown in order to meet the expanding community needs. Here, they talk about the Hub's pre-pandemic goals and operations and how they've adjusted over the past year. The Hub is what we would like to say is a community food resource center where our biggest program is an emergency food pantry, but we also really focus on the root causes of why this pantry has to exist. So we have an advocacy program, we have a garden and nutrition education program, and a tool share program for the garden and kitchen. In normal times, a lot of community events to involve patrons and other people who like food. Uh, so basically, my job entails food procurement, um, getting the food for the food pantry, everything that's coming in and out, and then just making sure that all of the functions around that are working well. We've been around for, I guess this will be our 23rd year. Jeez, wow. The garden programs, I don't actually, can't tell you off the top of my head when they started, but I think it, it actually was like within that first year, they started handing out seedlings and, and seeds and stuff. Our um, on-site garden, which has a, a native food forest, and we grow, you know, a variety of vegetables throughout the summer and the winter. Usually we're doing microgreens, but obviously everything's different because of COVID this year, and we just don't have the amount of volunteer help that we need, but that we will still have a garden this summer. It'll just be a little bit different. Um, and then this year we'll also do the um, garden kits like we did last year. And so Erica, our garden coordinator put together kits where you get seedlings, seeds, a little bit of soil and instruction on how to grow things. That was a big hit last year. I think, I think it will also be again this year. Specifically, something that focuses around the garden program, I think, is where the tool share program was developed a few years ago or a handful of years ago now, so that folks who have any sort of access um, to space to grow at home, whether it's in a bucket or, um, you know, on a window ledge or whether that's whether, you know, they have space for um, an actual garden bed uh, where they are. Uh, we want to have a lending library providing access to, yeah, folks to have the tools that they need to do that um, because that stuff's wildly expensive. The way that the hub has functioned for a long time is we get the majority of our food, and this still holds true, but we do get the majority of our food through the Hoosier Hills Food Bank. And from that, you know, we get 
food through programs like the TFAP, the Emergency Food Assistance Program that is directly from the USDA. Um, a good majority of our food is through that. And then we used to um, receive food that the food bank had picked up from grocery stores, restaurants, et cetera. Um, we have been pulling throughout the years further away from the foods that we accept from that. Basically, we want to push that folks who grow food should be paid living wages to grow that food and have a chance of not just survival, but making it. And so what we're doing and what we've been able to do even more this year than ever before um, by a large scale is purchase locally grown food. And we're going to continue doing that into this coming year from farmers around town, diverting a decent chunk of our yearly budget on food to local food sources. I think one thing we've encountered through doing this is that, you know, we, we wanted to focus on BIPOC and queer farmers if we could. And we've had trouble finding people who fall into those categories. And I, you know, it's like revealing, obviously, the cracks that are there in food equity and land equity. So we're having conversations on what might come next from that issue. So Bloomington, as a community, the poverty rate for children under five is 37.1%, which is incredibly shocking and is often dismissed by officials in power as a result of the students. But the census data is specifically for children under five. The poverty rate is 37%. So that, that would mean to me that these aren't college students that are contributing to this level of poverty. The food insecurity rate in Monroe County in 2017 was 16.8%, which was the second highest in the state of Indiana. And the cost of a meal in Monroe County was also second highest in the state of Indiana at $3.03, which would mean if you calculated gross income for a person working a minimum wage job would spend 15% of their daily wages on just meals. So we, we have a significant problem, I think, in Monroe County for food insecurity. I mean, I think obviously this year we're going to see that increase drastically. Um, are, we already are seeing that. We are seeing a lot of families who have never had to access our services coming to us. Something that I would add to that, too, is if somebody who is thinking about food insecurity as far as like within the Bloomington community, I think that it's so easy for folks to say, oh, there are food deserts in Bloomington, Monroe County, which is not true. If you want to say that there's a food apartheid, there's a design system to keep people of certain um, incomes down, then yes. But I think that, you know, one thing that people don't want to talk about, or it seems like a, a large amount of people don't want to talk about that we're trying to push is that there is food to be had. Folks don't make enough money to purchase it. They don't have living wages that they're getting paid in this town. There's not affordable housing that is in this town. And then there's not affordable healthcare on top of that. So the trifecta of those things, even if you're moving through life smoothly or, um, or seemingly smoothly, and one of those things gets hitched, you know, whether it affects your housing or whether 
it's a healthcare issue or any number of those things that can really disrupt you know, your livelihood and cause you to be food insecure. And yeah, I think that all three of those things in this town are things that need to be addressed when talking about food insecurity. So um, pre-COVID times, we have the pantry open Monday through Friday from noon until 6 p.m. And folks can come through. We ask folks to shop once a week, but it's totally an uh, an honor system-based pantry. um, And also nobody needs to have any sort of proof of need um, or proof of identification or anything like that. So folks come through and they get a choice. It's just set up like a grocery store. We stock out what we have and then folks can take what they need for that week. We would roughly see, I think, around 4,000 to 4,200 individuals a week pre-COVID times. The other thing I would say is like, we don't keep a lot of data on the people who come to us and that's done intentionally to make sure it's as low barrier as possible. You know, our our numbers right now are seemingly similar to what they were pre-COVID, even though I feel like we're probably missing some. And also because currently right now we aren't able to offer people much choice. I mean, they, they have some, but we aren't able to do that. And so I think that's also a challenge for people because no one really wants to be given the food. <laughs> they want to make a choice. And that is definitely a challenge in COVID times to make that as accessible as possible. I mean, and we're, we're trying, we're doing our best, but it's definitely something that we all feel is, is a really hard consequence of this pandemic. As they mentioned, Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, or The Hub, has had several community gardens in the past. But now their focus is on on on-site gardens, and they have their own food forest and grow a large number of vegetables on site, as well as giving away seedlings. Throughout the entire pandemic, their small group has been continuing to give away food at a breakneck pace. I asked them how they had to adjust their growing and giving practices during the pandemic. We moved everything outside. Initially, we tried to do it on the deck so that people could still have choice, but we just clearly that became too risky because we couldn't help people maintain social distance and especially early on when masks weren't being worn widely, we recognized quickly that it wasn't safe. So then we switched to a drive-through in the parking lot and it's evolved over the period of time where because we've really struggled with the inability to offer choice, I think it's a conversation we probably have every two weeks or something about how we can make that better. So now people just drive through and we drop the box in their trunk or if they walk up, we have a separate table for walk up. And then we have a list of everything that's available so that people can tell us if they don't want something in the box and then we just take it out for them to make it better. And then if the people want more of something, they just need to tell us and we're happy to do that. We still can accommodate gluten-free and other dietary needs like vegetarianism if we have items. We also have diapers and some baby food. So we're doing our best to offer that choice. I don't know, Kristen, you want to talk about like our production line? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when it hit, we were basically, there were just lines of traffic down the road. And we were just scrambling every day to kind of assembly line to put these boxes together. And, you know, that food is determined on what we're getting in um, from the food bank and then from local farmers. So we have a group of folks who like basically work out a food assembly line in the back, packaging those things up. We have people who are dropping them down and like adding, you know, frozen meat to them or fresh vegetables. And then we've got folks in the truck bay that are greeting people and loading those things up. 
that's how we're doing that. And we do that three days a week. Now we started out doing it five days a week. And because of the fact that we're not taking any volunteers and it's just been staff since March. Yeah. We had to cut that down because it was just, (laughs) I think all of us just was just like pass out at the end of the day, every day. And it definitely feels manageable as far as like being able to physically function in your body um, to keep up. And, you know, outside of doing the food, we're still taking shifts so that folks can come in and do admin work and Mm -hmm. still like communicate with partners and everybody that, you know, still needs answers for calls and emails and stuff like that. And definitely things are slipping through the cracks here and there. But yeah, I feel like we're definitely doing the best that we can to try and address everything. And then honestly, a huge shift for us has been that we don't have really a lot of other programs going. We have Toolshare going a little bit. We, you know, folks can call and pick up things through the line on Thursdays and then drop things off in the line on Thursdays. But, you know, we don't have like a full garden system going. We don't have our nutrition program going. And we have a little bit of advocacy going over like online programs throughout the month. But everything is just so scaled back and all of that time and energy is now just being focused into getting food in boxes and then getting that out as as efficiently as possible. There are 11 of us here when we're all healthy and there's no scares of being exposed to somebody or, you know, and then we are still trying to like allow people rest which is amazing about this organization is the emphasis on trying to maintain self-care. So yeah, ideally if everyone's here, there is 11 people. That also hasn't happened in a couple of weeks because we keep having near misses with COVID. Non-COVID times, we accept volunteers throughout the community. Um, We do see a lot of students through IU come, come in. Um, Interns aren't specific to any area. We just, if folks have the time and desire to volunteer in the garden or the nutrition program, doing, you know, cooking demos or having meals with other folks um, or with advocacy, working on policy um, or helping me out in the pantry. We, uh, yeah, we accept people kind of wide and large, you know, and we're also re-examining those things too, as far as like, training volunteers um, and interns. We we offer a decent amount of trainings around food justice, um, whether it's anti-racism or implicit bias, um, primary prevention. But I think that we are, you know, taking this time to assess the trainings that folks go through because everybody that, that's here, whether they work here or whether they volunteer here, we want to exhibit the values that this organization has. And not saying that they haven't in the past. I think we just really want to intentionally put energy and time into that focus. The nutrition program is run by Alyssa. Normally on a normal day, if the pantry is open, there'd probably be either Alyssa herself or a volunteer or an intern doing a cooking demo. A lot of the focus in the last year before everything closed down was using tools from the tool share as an example. So for example, like doing a food demo in the pantry using the food processor so that if someone's never used one and they're interested, they can see how it works. And then, you know, next to the demo, there's recipes for the food they're making. And then often, you know, if we get a lot of food from local farmers and sometimes, you know, it's food that people don't recognize. For example, I remember one year we got in this beautiful spotted romaine from the food bank, but a lot of people hadn't seen that kind of romaine 
And it was really beautiful. But it, if you hadn't seen that kind of romaine, you might think it's bad. And at the time, there were a lot of demos around that. And I think it really helped move that lettuce through the pantry. Another program is dig and dine, which we usually do in the summer. And it's, you know, you spend an hour working in the garden. And then in the meantime, um, volunteers and staff have been preparing a meal and everyone has a meal after working outside in the summer. And we all sit around and, and eat the food and have a nice conversation. We offer several, at least 12 to 14 workshops, usually every year with various topics and then Alyssa started doing really short drop-in classes as well, which was really successful. So the classes revolve around like bread making or kombucha making, or like we, we did one from foods from around the world. You know, it's really nice. It's really fun to have the smell of food around you while you're at work. <laughs> and I always really liked coming into the hub and seeing the things that people were making out of items that were available there because sometimes you're like you see something and you're like I'm not really sure what to do with this. And I and I think that that's one of the funny things about accessing your food this way is that it is this little problem set. It's this puzzle where you're like, "Well, I'm not sure what to do with all these raisins." You know, but <laughs> there are a lot of raisins right now. <laughs> so, in terms of the work that y'all have done to understand, you know, food justice and food insecurity more. Are there certain, you know, resources that you guys have explored that you found really helpful in sort of educating yourself about this? Yeah, um, a great resource would be through Closing the Hunger Gap um, and also Why Hunger. Just even visiting the Closing the Hunger Gap's website, um, there's a great resource. It's called an eight-point checklist for organizations, whether nonprofit or, or not, um, to go through to kind of assess, you know, where your values and priorities lie within your organization and how you can steer those to be more equitable. A book that is helpful to understand the bigger picture of food insecurity and how it operates in this country is a book called Big Hunger by Andy Fisher, and it explains the emergency food industrial complex, essentially. It's a really interesting read. This is just a piece of the puzzle. And if we are really serious about ending food insecurity in a community or our country. It's not about building more little free pantries or more food pantries. I mean, obviously those things are needed, but the resources would be really move things more if we could actually have a living wage, if we could actually have affordable housing, because we know that food is the thing that gets pushed to the side when you can't afford your rent. You have to pay your rent so you, you can't afford to buy your food. It's like the idea that donating a can of soup to the food pantry is really great, but maybe maybe instead of donating that can of soup, you could take that dollar and donate it to a food organization that's doing advocacy so that we can actually start to make a difference in that number of people who are food insecure. Because giving someone a can of soup is not going to change their situation other than those five minutes that they get to eat that can of soup. Yeah, just to echo 
exactly what Sarah said of like being willing to really re-examine our community is not a negative thing. It's not not having pride in your community to want to better it in areas of, you know, there should be no person who works for the government in the city that does not make a living wage. Nonprofits should be able to have enough money to pay their employees living wages. Other businesses should also be paying folks living wages. And I've driven through town and seen so many signs about our neighborhoods getting destroyed and I think that that's really harsh to not be willing to say that neighborhoods are already really destroyed if you have so many people who do not have housing. And I think just being willing to actually talk about root causes of poverty in this town would go a really long way in starting to tackle, like actually tackle them instead of believing that we live in a blue dot in a red state. And it feels like when I hear that, it almost feels like people think this is a post-racial town. And that's very alarming. And yeah, and again, it's not a negative thing to just want to improve where you are. Thanks for listening to the show. You can hear all of our episodes at partisangardens.org. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes, including one about the pawpaw, otherwise known as the Indiana banana, hear from striking workers in the food industry, and learn about searching for a sustainable food system in California. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.